This is the Tech Central Show, and I'm Duncan McLeod. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you watching TCS, and if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. You can do that at youtube.com slash techcentral. Now, venture capital is the focus of today's interview. I'm joined in the Tech Central studio by Clive Butko, who is CEO of Kalon Venture Partners, to talk about what's happening in the VC space in Africa and in South Africa. Clive, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for the opportunity. Tell me a bit about uh, Kalon Venture Partners. Uh, how long has it been around for now? What's your investment philosophy? And what are some of the more interesting investments you've made over the years? So let's ask the first question. I, uh, I was the CEO of Accenture South Africa, and uh, I left there at the end of 2012. And my background really was, a, from a degree point of view, was a computer science applied maths degree, always been into technology and innovation. And I worked with many startups in Silicon Valley and all over the world in building startups for our, throughout my career. At Accenture. At Accenture. And uh, so when I left 12, 10 years ago, I, I really left to start my own venture capital company called Kalon Venture Partners. It's a disruptive, innovative tech venture capital company. And currently, the two funds we have are based solely in South Africa because they were still based on the Section 12J uh, auspices from uh, National Treasury. What we do is we invest in disruptive tech. As I said, we go across sectors and across, um, not across geographies, across sectors and across stages. We're typically a growth capital investor, so we invest in growth capital, but we also do some early stage investments. We have 11 investments. We raised about a quarter of a billion rand, and uh, we're deploying our final bit of capital now. Okay. And we're about to bark on our third fund, which is hopefully to raise $50 million for an a African fund is to invest in the most innovative tech uh, entrepreneurs solving African problems. And that should hopefully be launched in the next uh, 12 months to 24 months. So f fund three, what size? Uh, you About $50 million. $50 million, that's, that's a big chunk of change. So, so um, are your fo is your focus mainly on South African startups or do you invest right across the continent? So Section 12J, when we uh, launched Section 12J, it was uh, only based on South African startups. So we had to invest in South African startups. So that quarter of a billion has been in 11 and soon to be our 12th startup. Okay. But this new fund we want to make, it's not Section 12J, that was disbanded by uh, National Treasury and SARS a few years ago. So we want to make this a non-South uh, African exclusively only fund. We will stay in tech, we'll stay in early stage and growth capital, but it'll be right across Africa. And typically across the, you know, West Africa, in Nigeria, Ghana, uh, East Africa, and Kenya, and maybe we might dabble in North Africa, mm -hmm. in, in, in Egypt and, and Morocco and places like that. But definitely a focus still on South Africa. Tell us a bit about some of the investments that you've made. What has been some of the more successful startups that you've invested in over the years? So I think one of the early investments we made was a company called Ozo, which is a oh, digital yes. payments company. Mm -hmm. It's got millions of people in South Africa. Something like a quarter of the population in South Africa have actually used Ozo. So something like 8 million people out of the 32 million people that have, uh, have bank accounts. And Ozo really is electronics funds transfer. So if you want to go to take a lot and buy, or you want to go buy tickets on uh, airlines, or it's in, it's in hundreds, or in fact, it's on thousands of e-commerce sites. You go into Ozo and you do a direct uh, electronic funds transfer payment from your bank account directly into the merchant's bank account. So as I said, something, something around 8 million users. We're doing about 2 billion rand per month wow. in uh, gross merchant value. So if you buy 1,000 rand worth on Take-A-Lot, that 1,000 rand will go through Ozo, and that's in, including that in the, in the 2 billion rand. We invested at quite an early stage, and uh, they, they raised about $48 million about a year ago. That was I in remember. the public domain, so that's nothing confidential. And we raised that capital, um, and we were very proud of this, you know, from the time that we came in, at about 11 times return on our capital from when we invested to that investment. Mm -hmm. So it was really a, a fantastic coup, not just for us, but obviously for the Ozo team. They continued to innovate. They raised from companies like Tencent. We all know Tencent. Mm -hmm. 
where Naspers owns a big stake. They also raised from an American VC called Graykoff Capital, which is a really one of the top VCs in, uh, in the US, and then a number of really prominent uh, South African uh, investors as well. So that's one of them. And next one we raised, we also came in at a very early stage. We came in literally at about the 50 million Rand mark. Mm -hmm. These guys, it's called Sendmark. It's a cyber security company. It makes e email safer and prevents phishing and spoofing. And Sendmark now has grown. They've just raised at about 550 million. So again, 11 times return on our capital. We also put a, a follow-on check into Sendmark. And then they're in multiple geographies all over the world, got thousands of clients they're in South America, they're in Australia, they're in Europe, they're in, big in South Africa, and growing at an unbelievable rate, something like 10% month on month, which gives you about a 300% cumulative annual growth rate per annum. So that's just two of our, two of our um, startups. Another very exciting, innovative one, which is very deep tech, is a company called CarScan. Now, if you've ever had a, an accident with your car, you would know you have to, you'll phone your insurance company, they'll tell you to go and get three quotes from Panel beaters, and it takes literally, I know I had this experience myself, it takes a month, two months mm -hmm. before they give the go-ahead. So what CarScan does is uses artificial intelligence, um, deep, deep artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, basically what you do is you take a picture, you just walk around your car, take a picture or image of your car, it'll pick up exactly what the damage is, whether it's on the tires, whether it's on the windscreen, whether it's on the windows, whether it's on the car. It'll pick up the costs from the, uh, this global database of car spares, and literally within one minute, you've got the exact cost of replacing. And then automatically, the insurance company can send it out to three panel, three panel beaters that are on the car scan uh, database. And literally within an hour or two hours, you can have a quote for, for your car. So this is growing quite nicely. We've got uh, most of the major insurance companies in South Africa using CarScan, most, most of the major automotive companies. And we've now gone into Botswana, Namibia, and we're getting into Southern Africa as well. And hopefully this obviously is a, uh, something we invest in is global companies. That South Africa, I say build your company where you birth it. So we start out in South Africa. Once we get product market fit, we get enough traction on all of our companies. We're then going to redomicile these companies uh, offshore, either in Delaware or in Luxembourg or in the UK or in Amsterdam. And then we're going to scale them globally at the right time mm -hmm. when we've got enough uh, traction in the South African market. So that's just three examples sure. of the 11 companies that we've got, but very much innovative tech, very much involved in innovation, and very much we don't invest in South African companies that can only go to South Africa. The market's too small. We're not going to mm. receive the, the, you know, the returns on capital to our shareholders. So yes, we birth it here, but then we take it globally and we, we scale the businesses to hopefully get an exit or either a trade exit or an IPO in uh, hopefully in either Europe or the yeah. US. Do South African VC providers like Kalon uh, have to be more cautious in their investments given the nature of this market? Uh, I know that it's often said in, in, in venture capital terms in Silicon Valley that you'll invest in 10 companies and one of them might be a, a big success. The rest of them could be, you know, muddle along or, or fail completely. Um, is there a need in South Africa to have more successes than VC players perhaps see in other markets? And how has that influenced your investment philosophy? I think, yeah, I think that's a good question, Duncan. I think there is actually. I think there's definitely, I don't think we've, the odds of in Silicon Valley is, you know, you get your 100XR, that'll give you not only your return of your whole fund, but it'll give a nice return, 30, 38% IRR return to your investors. And typically what they look at in Silicon Valley and, and other parts of Europe and, and the US is maybe one, a real home run and none of them are going to strike out, maybe get to first base, second base or third base. You get a two times return on your capital, get a three times return on your capital. We far more circumspect than that. You know, we, we really cannot have nine out of 10 companies failing because of the size of the market. So when we invest, if I look at it now, we will have failures. I have no doubt about that. We're not special that we can pick every single investment that's going to, you know, get a home, achieve a home run. 
Are we looking at eight, you know, maybe not a home run, a hundred times return on capital, but at least a 10 times return on capital, five times return on capital, or at worst, two, three times return on capital. And I think what's important for what we've done as Caelan, I think that's why we actually, we really are doing well at the moment, fortunately. And I think we've, we've, we've followed a lot of discipline and not overpaying for companies in South Africa. So one of the problems you had before the global meltdown that's happening now is venture capitalists all over the world were just buying companies at ridiculous multiples. You know, a company was doing a million dollars, was raising at a hundred million dollars, a hundred X on revenue. We were paying five to 10 times revenue in South Africa. So we, what, you have, what happened in, in, in Silicon Valley, companies took three to four years to actually work into their valuations, to mm-hmm. grow into their valuations, and they're still doing that now. We haven't had that problem where we, we didn't pay these um, astronomical, ridiculous uh, multiples. So we actually, we, we've, we've got the companies at the right uh, multiple. So even with a downturn, we're still not struggling. We still, yes, econ- economically, the companies are, uh, you know, it's harder to get business and it takes a lot more effort. The, the sales cycles are taking longer. Uh, Etc. But um, but we're looking, you know. Thank goodness, I think definitely ourselves, and I think a lot of our, our peers in the venture capital space in, in South Africa are doing. Haven't had this thing about uh, investing in ridiculous multiples. I'm not saying all of them, and venture capital is a very very important asset class. You know, for us to grow the VC industry or the entrepreneur tech industry in South Africa, predominantly in tech, mm-hmm. it's it's very very important. And VC's grown. Since Section 12J was launched, has grown substantially in South Africa. Mm-hmm. It's still a very small percentage of the total ecosystem of, of the world um, venture capital. If you look at Africa, we did about $5 billion in venture capital last year. Only, I think, South Africa was only the fourth or fifth rated behind Nigeria, Kenya, wow. Egypt. And South Africa was four or five in, involved in that, a few hundred million dollars going into. Has it historically been first? No. So it was better off historically, yeah. but I think Nigeria and definitely North Africa has grown significantly, and Kenya has grown significantly as well. Is that because those countries are doing something better than we are? I think they are, actually. I think they've got bigger markets for one, like Nigeria's got a very, very big market. Yeah. I think their fintech market payments, remittances, and all things that are related to financial technology have got bigger markets. But also, they, because of the size of their markets, they're getting a lot of foreign uh, investment coming in there. So of the $5 billion, a lot of that's gone from the big venture capitalists mm-hmm. around the world who want to get into Africa, know that the market's good, the size of the market's good, Yes, some of that is coming into South Africa, but South Africa, unfortunately, hasn't got a good reputation mm-hmm. for foreign direct investment. So a lot of investors, I know that I speak to, yes, we've had some nice foreign investors coming into our 11 companies, but we've had a lot more no's than we had yeses. Not because of our companies, they just don't want to go to South Africa. Why do they, why do they say no? Because, uh, you know, I think our, our startup laws are not very conducive to putting a lot of capital in, getting the capital out. I think uh, there's a lot of, there's a, something called the Startup Act in a lot of company, uh, countries in South Africa, in Ghana, in Tunisia, in, uh, in Kenya, in Nigeria, where their Startup Acts are just far more advanced in South Africa. Do and we I have a Startup Act in South Africa? We don't really. You know, mm. we're trying to, and a lot of companies or, or NGOs are working with the government to make, you know, move from red tape to red carpet. But mm. we're really struggling and we, we haven't really made those strides in terms of doing that. If you look what other companies or other countries are doing, they're making it easy for immigrants to come into the country. Right. If you take Silicon Valley, it's a very interesting statistic, but 51% of the NASDAQ-listed companies are non-American. They're actually mm-hmm. immigrants. And to get visas and, and, and papers to work in this country is very, very difficult. And to attract, and, and for me, it's very important, I think, to attract this unbelievable talent from all over the world, that we can bring that talent here, they can start companies, and they employ South African people. Good for the GDP, mm-hmm. good for the, the, the fiscus, good for tax and everything like that. But we're not very um, ha- uh, friendly with bringing, the, as an example, bringing in um, other, you know, bringing in foreigners. Another example of that is our intellectual property laws. You know, it's very hard mm-hmm. to get approval from National Treasury and, and Saab 
to take companies offshore. And it's good for everyone to take companies offshore because you, you access more capital from overseas capital. Typically, the businesses are still South African, so the operating companies are still in South Africa. We're still hiring the people in South Africa. We're still paying taxes in South Africa. So yeah. it's actually a pity. And I, I really hope maybe someone from government can listen to this and really say, you know, how do we actually make South Africa more conducive to startups? Because there's a lot of people, Cape Town particularly, I mean, it's a very exciting destination. It's got, you know, the eighth wonder of the world. It's got the, 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 the climate. It's got a great tech technology um, entrepreneur ecosystem, but we're still not attracting enough talent. If I take CarScan as an example, we're looking for the best artificial intelligence skills in the country. Mm -hmm. And most of the skills are either working at home for overseas companies or they've gone overseas to work. Yeah. So we have to use offshore offshore resources, like in India, to actually develop this technology, which I think is very, very sad. So, so what you're saying is that these Reserve Bank rules around foreign exchange, etc., that are crimping the development of this industry is actually resulting in founders leaving the country to start their businesses. Well, absolutely. I just think it's not enough founders coming to this country or founders trying to you know, take their companies offshore at a very, very early stage yeah. before they might have much intellectual property. Mm -hmm. But it's tough. You know, we've done that with a few of our companies where the, the only way we can get foreign direct investment or, or foreign investment is through a re entity, either in Delaware in the US or in Luxembourg or in Amsterdam or in the UK. Mm -hmm. And also these companies won't invest in, in, in these South African startups. And it's really hard to get these companies to domicile. I'm not saying it's impossible. It takes a long time. It's difficult. But if we had more of a, a, a you know, a, a, a great uh, startup culture mm -hmm. or startup act, I think it would really do wonders for our startup ecosystem. Because it really is, you know, small, medium-sized businesses is the heartbeat of the economy. Mm -hmm. That is where this economy is going to grow. It's not going to grow in the corporates. The corporates mm -hmm. are retrenching people, as we all know. The big tech companies are retrenching people. And these little startups are, are, are growing mm -hmm. from 10 to 50 to 100 to 200 people. If I look at Ozo I spoke about, you know, they've got over 100 people looking to hire another 100 this year. That's 100 South Africans that are being, that are being hired, not 100 foreigners, even mm -hmm. though the money might have, or the capital might have, predominantly coming from overseas, the hiring is actually taking place mm -hmm. in South Africa. So we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot by not having a better uh, startup act. Have you had any conversations with anyone in government, be it at SARS or the South African Reserve Bank or the Department of Trade and Industry, uh, about some of these challenges? I personally haven't, but yeah. a lot of the companies that I've worked with have. And what's the sort of feedback the government's providing on, on these concerns? No, I think the, the intentions industry? are honourable. The yeah. intentions are there, but I think it's the execution is not. Oh. You know, everyone speaks the right language, but I think to actually get these laws promulgated and get it through National Treasury it's, a lot, <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. So there's no doubt they say the right things, but mm -hmm. it's just not happening fast enough. Yeah. And we're losing our great talent. We're losing our great opportunities to the rest of the world. Because if you look at tech today, you can start a tech company anywhere. Yes. You know, a year or two years ago, it was Silicon Valley or nowhere. Now it's anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, most of these companies that are hiring people, they're hiring people all over the world. The best talent from all over the world. Because with uh, people working remotely, you can actually do that. But you still want to get your RP and your intellectual property. You want to get it offshore that you can potentially get a, an overseas exit. And the tax still comes back to South Africa. Yes. So we all win when, when that can actually take place. So tell me a bit about Section 12J that was introduced by the South African Revenue Service. When, when was this introduced? What was it? Uh, how important was it for the VC ecosystem in South Africa? And how, how negative is it that SARS is candid? it? I think it was promulgated, if I remember correctly, in, 20, in 2012, okay. so about 10 years ago. And it was given a, I think it was given a lifetime of, a, I think it was about 10 years okay. or something like that, or maybe nine so or expired. eight years. And it expired. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, all the lobbying that took place to get it extended, um, that, unfortunately, National Treasury decided not to extend it, which was quite unfortunate about two, three years ago. So there was a lot of money pumped into the Section 12J Venture Capital. 
I think one of the reasons it wasn't extended, and I think probably the main reason, I think it was abused. Okay. So there was a few like us who really it was, it, the intention was for tech companies to help these startup tech companies that are going to create lots of employment, tax, and increase the fiscus. And it was, I think it was abused by a lot of property companies to build, build properties and a number of solar energy and a number of other right. areas, which I don't think was its initial intention. So I really think the, you know, the couple of the, the rotten apples, I think, infected the, 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 the others of us that, that it, was, it was great for in South Africa before. So that's a very, very positive spin-off, I think, of Section 12J. Mm-hmm. And people are seeing that there's big, nice returns. You don't have to get the 5%, 10% return. You can get a 20 30 40% return on venture capital. Mm-hmm. So I think in the scheme of things, yes, 12J was, was, was terminated. But I think it definitely served its purpose in giving, creating a lot of good venture capital companies. Maybe there's only 10 or 20 that, that, that back the tech space. Yep. But these are now raising capital from all sorts of other assets, right. from other asset classes. So Section 12J wasn't specifically focused on tech. It was, it was across the board. I think that was the intention was tech, was manufacturing. Okay. So okay. all small businesses, SMBs. Right. But then it went into, as I said, it went into things like property, which is definitely wasn't the intention. The focus, right. And but the but the not not you know not slamming anyone because mm. the law enabled it. I think there yep. were loopholes and the law enabled it. So most of the companies that were set up in twelve jail, the two hundred were set up either for solar energy or for property. They weren't actually set up for SMBs, mm-hmm. small medium businesses to create that impetus and, and that growth in those companies. So I wasn't personally I was not surprised that sure. it was terminated. I, I I told all the guys that told me I was I was I was incorrect, mm-hmm. but uh, I didn't want to tell them I was correct. But I just didn't think I think it had been abused, and I think that's why it was. I mean, apart from the abuse, do you think it was generally a success for SARS? I think it was. I think very much. If I look at my sector, it was probably invested in a few hundred startups, which wouldn't have had capital to invest in those startups. Right. If I look at our eleven companies and our quarter of a billion, that was all raised under Section Twelve J, and we really are teed up well now. We've got a great track record. We've got some good potential exits that we can now go and go to the pension funds right. and other places to actually go and raise capital. Right. If we hadn't had Twelve J, I don't think we. Would, I would be sitting here today with that track record and, mm-hmm. and HOs behind us in, in Calum Venture Partners with our quarter of a billion. So it was fantastic. I think it was a fantastic initiative. Unfortunately, it got, uh, got disbanded. So do you think uh, a new version of 12J should be introduced in the South African market to encourage investment in VCs, maybe with some tighter rules around it designed by SARS? Look, I think it would be great. Um, I know they have just released a 12 thing B or something like that, which is for solar energy, which is definitely needed okay. in the country right now. Right. So at least that has you know, created this, uh, this, this need for, for, for a solar fund. Which is definitely needed right now. This so is the fifteen thousand rand uh, fund. That the one hundred twenty-five percent for businesses for, for businesses get on their uh, investment into solar energy. I'm not. I'm not an expert at that. We, that's not our, our wheelhouse. So we sure. stay in tech. So yes, I think it definitely serves its purpose. Uh, as I said, I wouldn't be sitting out today and. We've got quite a few people we've hired. We've had hundreds and hundreds of people in our portfolio companies. And we're doing a couple of billion rand in, in all our I-11 portfolio companies. So if you look what that has helped, if I look back to when we invested to how we're doing now, we've created significant jobs, significant wealth, significant tax for the fiscus. So I think that's been a success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Clive, I want to talk about two massive events that occurred in the last three years. The first, obviously, was COVID, which hit in 2000. And more recently, we've seen aggressive interest rate tightening by by the Federal Reserve and, and central banks around the world as they try to fight inflation. What has been the impact on the venture capital space here in South Africa of those two things? I think firstly, COVID was definitely a beneficiary for our tech companies. You know, you see the company like Zoom and the company, there was just so much in e-commerce and there was so mm. much happening online. So it was an unbelievable boost. You look at these, you know, order in and these delivery platforms and places like that. And so that was definitely a COVID boost. There were COVID beneficiaries and Definitely in the tech sector, there were significant COVID beneficiaries. Unfortunately, what has happened, you would have seen this unbelievable growth during COVID. And since, you know, the end of COVID, those companies, a lot of them have actually gone backwards to where they were before. Mm -hmm. So those are not great companies to invest in. Fortunately, our companies, we had one company actually that from 
you know, two million a month that went down to zero during COVID. It was wow. just in a, in a space that it was retail and everyone had stopped spending. And now we've got that company back to over three million a month. So 36 million rand a, a year company. Mm-hmm. So we've, me- we've been able to turn it around, but that's taken a lot of hard work and effort to, in, to enable that. So COVID, did, I think, definitely initially had a, a great positive uh, beneficiary uh, to, to tech companies and, other, and many other companies, as you would know. I think bigger than COVID now is actually the, is, is the interest rate hikes in the U.S. Because the days of, there's just so many funds in the U.S. and all over the world. Yes. There's thousands and thousands of these venture capital funds. Now, there was always the great tier one, the Sequoias and the, you know, Andreessen Horowitz or tier one. They'll always be tier one. They've been tier one for a long, long time. But suddenly you started getting this tier two raising capital and tier three raising capital. And these places were just investing capital. They're right and center. They were, they were taking a day from meeting the entrepreneur to investing the capital. They weren't doing due diligence. The whole thing actually broke down. Capital, the cost of capital was really cheap. It was left less than 1%. So there was more and more money flowing and capital flowing into venture capital. So any company was getting funded. The good, the bad, and the ugly companies were getting funded. What has happened subsequent to that, particularly in 2022, you've now found, I think they say, um, you, you'll find it who's not wearing a costume when the tide goes out. Mm-hmm. And the tide has gone out. And a lot of these companies who were raising at 100 times return on capital, they didn't really have a, a viable business model. They weren't even competing properly in a proper space. They are going bankrupt left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. And you're finding a lot of these tier two, tier three venture capital companies have lost their money. Never mind Silicon Valley Bank, where fortunately the government came in and, and, and actually bailed them out. So there was, a, I think venture capital lost its, its pr- premium, cl- premium class mm. during 2020, 2021, 22. Does this but, typically always happen during interest rate tightening cycle? No, most definitely. So these, these local partners who are investing in the venture capital companies and in funds are now going to invest in the money market funds right. and getting 5 6% uh, guaranteed return on their capital. Mm-hmm. So we, we, capital was so cheap at 1% that they had to put their money elsewhere. Yeah. But that, that's all changed. And you would see now that companies have to, now they're paying, it's all going back to the five, 10 times multiples mm-hmm. on revenue if it's a software as a service type of tech company. But realistic um, valuations, the days of investing in a day are over. Yep. The days of not doing these thorough DDs are over. So you would see if you just look at all over the world, except for Africa has actually climbed a bit in terms of the number of investments and the amount of investments. Most of the other markets around the, around the world have actually declined quite significantly. Is Africa counter-cyclical? In a way, it is. I think it's just because Africa is only about 1% of the total venture capital funding. So it's a very, very small percentage of the funding goes into Africa venture capital. So we, we're working off a very small base. Mm. But it did go from about $5 billion to, I think, $5.5 billion in, in 2022. So it actually grew about 10%. Yeah. And you never know which numbers to look at because there's a number of different surveys and all come up with different numbers. But I think it definitely grew. The number of investments grew and the amount of capital grew. But if you look at the US, you look at Europe, you look at China, you look at India, most of them actually declined quite Quite substantially, but they were very, very bloated mm-hmm. during 2020, 2020, We had, you know, we had 10 years since the 20, 2008 financial crisis. We had 10 years or 12 years of unbelievable yeah. returns in the venture capital space. Low interest just, rate for an unprecedented absolutely. period of time. I mean, do you think the, the low interest rate environment, uh, particularly by the U.S. Fed, uh, was, was creating bubbles all over the market? Most definitely. There was this asset class that could give these great returns. You know, most of these, if you look at like uh, Sequoia Capital, their mm. local partners who invest in their fund are things like uh, endowments and grants from the likes of Stanford University and places mm. like that. And they were returning 90% IRR. So when you're getting a 90% IRR, what do you do? You keep on putting more and more and more, more capital yeah. until you don't because that's when the, you Absolutely. know, everything falls over. <laughs> it, it just fell over. 
So those nitrous in IRRs were just, they were freak. Yeah. But everyone thought that was the standard. But this is healthy, right? I mean, the, we have to have this clean out of the system. Uh, from no that. question about that. Mm -hmm. If you look at listed companies, I mean, they have dropped 70, 80% from their, from their peaks in 2021, 20, 22. Yeah. Yeah. So, listen, you know, and the, typically the, the public sector, I mean, the, the, the public markets, the private markets take their, their cue from the public markets. So typically the private market's about mm -hmm. six months behind the public market. So you'll see the public markets have, have really taken a, a, a hiding. And now you're seeing that in the private markets. Companies are just not able to raise at those ridiculous valuations. Mm -hmm. They're running out of cash. The liquidity crisis there, where they would have guaranteed a follow-on because they grew at 20 or 50% year-on-year, they would have guaranteed a follow-on, what we call drop powder in our mm -hmm. industry. There's no more guarantees. There's mm -hmm. no more guarantees that there will be more capital from your venture capitalists. In fact, what I say to my companies is just assume that your lost investment is your lost. Mm -hmm. So you've got to go now, get to cash flow break even, and fund your, your growth out of free cash flow and not fund it out of the next check I'm going to write or another venture capitalist right. going to write because you have to assume they're not going to write another check. Yeah. Unless you're already the outlier that's growing at 10% month on month, that's got incredible unit economics, that you get, get to cash flow break even, either you can demonstrate good financials that you can get to cash flow break even, or they're ready at cash flow break even. Those few 1% will raise capital. But it's the other 95, 99%, that's the problem. They're mm. not going to raise capital. I read every day in the, all the press I get, this company's gone in and this company's gone in, this company's gone in all over the world, including Africa. Mm. And how long does this business cycle last for? When do we see? You know, it's anyone's guess, so Duncan, it's <laughs> anyone's guess. You know, if, if, if I knew that, I'd probably get into a hedge fund manager or something like that. We just don't know. But what we'd rather do is saying, let's prepare for the worst. Mm -hmm. Let's extend our 12 months runway to 36, 48 months runway, at least get to 36 months. We hope it'll be over by then. But 12 months runway is just not enough yeah, yeah. because the, the number one role of a CEO is not to run out of cash. Yes. And that's all they've got to do is not run out of cash. Mm -hmm. And what's happened in the past, they grew nicely, say, at 5% month on month or 10% month on month. That next check was coming in. Mm -hmm. So the problem was entrepreneurs were, were rewarded by growing their top line and not growing their bottom line. Mm -hmm. No one cared about the bottom line. I also, I'll be honest with you, I focused on top line. Let's get top line growth, two, 300% year-on-year growth. We knew the next check was going to come in at a 10x valuation of the previous round, and we looked like heroes. Mm. But I'm telling all of them now, don't make that assumption at all. Mm. You've got to get to free cash. Mm -hmm. That you, you must finance your growth out of cash. Mm -hmm. And so is, is they that, don't like it, it when I tell them that. Yeah. And sometimes you have to cut people out your organization. you just mm. got to cut hard, cut once, cut, cut, cut as deep as you can. And make your cash go further. Mm -hmm. And I must say, most of them have come back to me and said, Clive, thank goodness you've said that. Because if we hadn't, we would have actually been out of business by now. Yeah. And our companies are actually thriving in these tough economic times. But we've had to take some very, very hard decisions. And not because they're bad companies. They were still growing nicely. But we knew the next check wasn't necessarily there. So yes. get your free cash. Fund your growth out of free cash. And you're in a phenomenal position to actually raise further capital. Right. So is that the number one bit of advice you're giving investee companies right now? Focus on cash flow. Most definitely. You know, there's a great terminology used by Y Combinator, which is probably one of the most successful um, uh, uh, accelerators in the world, which is in Silicon Valley. <clears throat> and they call, talk about two things. It was actually Paul Graham, who was the CEO of Y Combinator, mm -hmm. talks about default alive and default investable. So you need to get your company to default alive. And what he means by that is you need to have enough free, to get to free cash flow. So this focus on cash, you know, growth at all costs is over. Mm -hmm. Now it's focus on efficient growth. You've got to focus on efficiency to get to what he calls default alive. And default alive means in the next 12 months, you can actually get to free cash flow. Mm -hmm. You can actually fund your growth out of free cash. That's default alive. Default investable says you're the one to 5% of companies that you're growing to 300% and you're still investable. Where 95% of companies won't be investable, that 5% will still be investable because you're growing at such a massive rate. Your union economics are great. You've got go-to-market fit. You've got product market fit. You've got final market fit. 
And that's the message that they're going. So it's not, I'll be honest with mm-hmm. you, I, I plagiarized his, uh, his message, but it's worked wonders for the stuff, mm-hmm. for every market, but definitely for our investing companies. I gave a talk the other day to a conference about how you survive and thrive in these economic times. And I got incredible feedback from the entrepreneurs yeah. saying, wow, I never would have thought of this. And I'm not being given this uh, sort of insight. I said, well, you know, that's the insight you need to know today. Yeah. The yeah. world has changed. Yeah, yeah. So the, the world of easy money is, is gone Over. for now anyway. Before I let you go, Clive, um, uh, maybe uh, just a view from you on, uh, on, on, on perhaps someone who's watching this interview, listening to this interview, and has been thinking for some time, maybe I should start a, a company. Now, three years ago, you were probably giving that person different advice to what you'd be giving them now. What would you, what would you tell someone who's thinking of starting out? Um, what, what mistakes should they avoid? And, and what should they be doing perhaps a little bit differently to someone who was starting their company five years ago when money flow was a bit easier? Well, I think five years ago, as you roughly said, they could have had a good idea and they probably could have raised early stage uh, angel investment from just having an early mm-hmm. idea without even any product being developed. Those days are really hard to come by. You need at least to have a product now and some initial traction to actually raise. There are obviously exceptions to that rule, but I think if you've got a product, you've got some early traction, there's a chance that you will raise if you've got a great team, et cetera, et cetera. So advice I'd give them, I think number one, it's not easy. Don't think it's easy. It is really, really hard. If, you get, if you've got a great paying job and you're feeding three or four kids and you've got to put them to private schools, be careful before you make this jump. Mm-hmm. Rather have enough two years of runway or two years of cash in your, you know, in your, on your balance sheet and then maybe you can start a company. Don't just throw in and, and start a company. Other bit of advice I'd give them is start this thing part-time. Mm-hmm. Get this company going while you've got your great salary. Get it going on weekends. Until you've got enough traction, maybe you've got enough revenue to start the company and then maybe look at making that, uh, that move. But don't underestimate how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Everyone's telling me, Clive, it's not that hard. I say, well, how many companies have you built? Mm-hmm. They've never built a company. It is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. The second thing, if you are going to start a company and you can afford to start a company, don't put your, your family's lifestyle at, not lifestyle, just survival at stake. Don't sure. do that. Yeah. Rather wait till you're a little bit older and you've got a bit of a nest egg. I think that's when you should be doing it. The second bit of advice I'd always give them is, I see too many entrepreneurs today when I say to them, okay, tell me about your unit economics. How do you make money? What's your go-to-market? What's your financials? What's your cost of customer acquisition? What's your lifetime value? What's your burn multiple? For every dollar I put in, how many dollars am I going to get back? And they haven't got a clue. They don't know. They say, well, I'll speak to my accountant. I said, no, you don't have to be an accountant, but you need to know your unit economics. Mm-hmm. You, the CEO or founders, have to understand the financial side of your business. You have to. Mm-hmm. Because I will not, honestly, Duncan, I will not invest in a company unless the founders actually understand how they will actually make money, mm-hmm. how they'll get to free cash flow. What does it cost you to acquire this customer? If you're in business to, to, to uh, uh, your business to enterprise, you're selling software as a service or, or B2B and you're selling to big enterprises, what does it cost you to acquire each customer? If it's costing you 100,000 Rand and you're getting 10,000 back, it doesn't make any economic sense. And all of them don't actually understand these basic metrics and financials of their business. So get to know your financials of your business. You have to. Because if you don't, you're going to get caught with your pants down and you're going to run out of money, run out of cash, and you will have no business. And secondly, what I said earlier, don't expect that there'll be another check after the first check. Assume there'll be no more checks and get to that cash flow break even. Because if you can get those unit economics and you can get to me putting in a dollar and I'm getting $2 back, I'm writing you out a check. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. You know, that burn multiple, I'm putting in a million, I'm getting $2 million back. It's great unit economics. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem writing out your check. But you've got to demonstrate to me that my money will, it's very, very capital efficient. Mm-hmm. Because capital efficiency is not something we had in the past. It, as I said, it was always about growth at all costs. Now it's about efficient growth. It's about capital efficiency. And you have to demonstrate that you can be a capital efficient business. That when your revenue grows, your revenue grows faster than your cost. And that's about how you scale 
a technology mm-hmm. business. So you need that capital efficiency, a word that wasn't actually ever mentioned by a venture capital company. We didn't even understand the, 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 the jargon about capital efficiency. But the world has changed. Mm-hmm. It's the first word out of my mouth is being capital efficient. Yeah. And yeah. you have to show me as an entrepreneur, you are starting out that you are going to be capital efficient. How important is experience for a, for a startup? A Absolutely essential. I want to ask because, uh, you know, some of the most successful tech companies in the world were started by university dropouts. People never worked in a corporate environment. Bill Gates at Microsoft, for example, dropped out of university to found Microsoft. And there are plenty of other examples. I think it's, I think it's the same with Steve Jobs at Apple and, and other companies. Um, you've got fantastic experience uh, working with Accenture at a senior level, uh, which has no doubt helped you and assisted you in your, in your own startup, Kalon Venture Partners, and and growing that business and that experience from Accenture no doubt, no doubt brought a lot to bear. What would your advice be to someone who is perhaps, perhaps studying computer science and has an interest in possibly starting his own tech company at some point? Should they go into corporate first and learn some of the ropes of the corporate world? Or would you advise them to go straight into starting that startup? They're maybe 20 years old and they want to do this. I think uh, your advice is uh, your, your first bit of advice. I think uh, the, the advice I give to many, many, many students, you know, get a degree, number one. Mm-hmm. Get a degree because it's a great safety net. Go into consulting, go into corporate finance, or go into something for five years, max, mm-hmm. and go there to learn, 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 and learn. Don't go there to earn. Don't worry how much you earn. Go there to learn. Because if you can learn product and sales and marketing and engineering and everything you need to do in a startup, yeah. get to know a little bit about everything. So I call it a T-top entrepreneur. You know, you've got the T, which you've got, you've got the, the horizontal, and then you've got the V, which is the vertical. So become a, get to know a lot about a little thing. So don't, you don't have to be an expert at 20 things. Just get to know enough about product and sales and marketing, but become an expert at one thing. So become a T-top entrepreneur, which I think is very, very important. And I like to invest in those T-top entrepreneurs. They might be the great engineer, but they know enough about, um, about all the other aspects of growing a business. And you get that from working in a business. You know, when I joined Accenture, I was going to start my own business. Mm-hmm. But then I sort of got, I use the word seduced by Accenture to go overseas. And I've never been on a plane before to go overseas and get training. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll go for five years to learn exactly what I'm saying now, to become that T-type entrepreneur. And 28 years later, I, I retired, mm-hmm. in all honesty. But I've worked on so many startups that I've built and failed at, at many as well. Now, I think failure is the best teacher. So my best advice is go and get that, that learn as much as you can about everything in business mm-hmm. and then go and find, start a startup. Mm-hmm. Also, if you start a startup, you got to, a startup needs two types of people. It needs someone who can build the stuff. I'm talking about a tech startup now and someone that can sell the stuff. Mm-hmm. So you need a hacker that can build it and a hustler that can sell it. And if I see two founders, and I like to invest in two founders, someone that's a real engineer that can really build incredible technology and someone that can sell that incredible technology. I don't like to invest in two engineers mm-hmm. because they love building stuff. Mm-hmm. Bull, bull, bull. I said, why aren't you going out to market it? No, 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 it's not perfect. I want to build another feature. I want to build. I said, no, get it out to market. Reed Hoffman, the CEO of LinkedIn, said, if you don't get something out to, or if you're not embarrassed about your first release of your technology, you've released it too late. And he's absolutely right. So mm-hmm. I want the salesperson who wants to get it out to market and the, the hacker who's really builds a great product. So, but like Apple had Steve Wozniak, yeah, he was the hacker, Wozniak and Steve Jobs, Jobs. was the sales guy. Yeah. Apple had it, Microsoft had it, they all had it, mm-hmm. in all honesty. Mm-hmm. So going back to your point, even Steve Jobs had to get fired from Apple and then he went and started a few more companies before he came back to Apple and he, and he was incredibly successful. If you take Amazon, those two had. Um, adult supervision before the two founders now had adult supervision for 10 years before they took over. So I would say get that experience and if you haven't got the experience yourself and you want to start a company, find someone that has. Mm -hmm. Find someone at least on your board, an advisor, hopefully a Mm co-founder that's got that experience because honestly it's 10 times easier to build a startup when you've done it before than you've never done it before because 
I don't like investing in first-time entrepreneurs because I don't want to pay their school fees. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. It's really expensive. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do help them, but I would prefer to find someone that's done it before. One of my companies called Flow, which is a property tech company. The two founders uh, exited a company, sold it for a few hundred million rand, and now they're founders of their next company. It's unbelievable what a difference it makes when you've got two mature founders. They've paid their school fees. I'm not saying they've got all the answers yet, sure. but they have a lot more answers than the guys that have never done it. So right. it's hard to start from nowhere. Can it, is it possible? No. It's not impossible. But I think South African VC, which is still quite a cottage industry, there's yeah. not enough capital out there. We far prefer to go to second-time founders and start with first-time founders. Mm -hmm. The beauty about Silicon Valley, they call it playing it forward. If you look at most of the venture capitalists and the investors there, they're actually entrepreneurs who've built their own businesses. Mm -hmm. They've built their businesses and now they're investors. They've got the networks. They've got the human capital. They've got the social capital. They've made it. They've, got, they've been there, they've done it. Mm. So they're actually paying it forward to the next level of entrepreneurs. We unfortunately don't have that success in South Africa. We don't have enough entrepreneurs mm. that have had, built first-time businesses. So they're really trying it the first time. They are going to have to pay their school fees. Mm -hmm. But maybe in 10 or 15, 20 years, we, we will also be, become more like Silicon Valley. Mm. We've had those first-time entrepreneurs. They've exited their business, and now they can start paying it forward. But unfortunately, we're not there yet in, in South Africa. Fantastic conversation. I think we could go on for hours on this, on this topic, Clive, but we have to end it somewhere. Uh, fantastic insights into the state of VC in South Africa. And I'd love to have you on again at some point uh, to talk about uh, how the market is developing. Clive Budko is a CEO of Kalon Venture Partners. Thank you so much for coming into the Tech Central Street. Thank you very much. Thank you.